continuing the account of Nehemiah, I'm reading from the sixth chapter. When Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies found out that we had almost completed the rebuilding of the wall, though we had not yet hung all the doors of the gates, they sent me a message asking me to meet them in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But I realized they were plotting to kill me. So I replied by sending back this message to them. I am doing a great work. Why should I stop to come and visit with you? Four times they sent the same message and each time I gave the same reply. The fifth time Sanballat's servant came with an open letter in his hand and this is what it said. Geshem tells me that everywhere he goes, he hears the Jews are planning to rebel and that is why you're rebuilding the wall. He claims you plan to be their king, and that is what is being said. He also reports that you have appointed prophets to campaign for you at Jerusalem by saying, look, Nehemiah is just the man we need. You, can't be very, you can be very sure that I am going to pass these interesting comments on to King Artaxerxes. I suggest that you come and talk it over with me, for that is the only way you can save your life. My reply was, you know you're lying. There isn't one bit of truth to the whole story. You're just trying to scare us into stopping our work. Oh, Lord God, please strengthen me. A few days later, I went to visit she Shania, the son of Deliah, who was the son of Mehitabel, for he said he was receiving a message from God. Let us hide in the temple and bolt the doors, he exclaimed for they are coming tonight to kill you. But I replied, should I, the governor, run away from danger? May God earn his blessing to this reading from his word. Fifty-two years ago this fall, on November the 11th, 1921, an American Army soldier, Sergeant Edwin Younger, in a military cemetery in France, stepped forward and there were three plain coffins draped in flags, each containing the body of an unknown soldier, a soldier for whom no identification could be made. Sergeant Younger looked at those three coffins and finally he placed a white carnation on one of them. That coffin was brought back to the United States of America and in a dignified and beautiful ceremony, in a splendid monument in Washington, D.C., that body was interred in the ground. If you go to Washington, you can see men who walk in a famous honor guard ceremony before that tomb of the unknown soldier. Inscribed there are the words, here rests in glory and honor an American soldier who is known but to God. Since the time that that coffin was placed there, other American soldiers have been placed there from World War II and from the Korean War. And I suppose that now one will be placed there from the Vietnam conflict. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. 
but peace is a condition which God alone can confer, and it comes as he builds in our hearts through men and women who are surrendered to him those things which have to do with peace. When a nation which has been favored of God turns its back upon God, that nation may expect the rebuke of God. In ancient Israel, the people who had been given so much light from God turned their back upon him after entreaty and entreaty from the prophets whom they stoned and whom they slew. They turned a deaf ear to the voice of the Almighty. And so God allowed them to be brought away into a cruel captivity, and they were chastened sorely by it. Their beloved city of Jerusalem was burned to the ground. Finally, Ezra was allowed to go back and to rebuild the temple. And then finally, this man, Nehemiah, who served in the court of Artaxerxes, a Persian king, a place of an official position. He was cupbearer, but it meant more than that. The cupbearer was sort of a prime minister, a person of great authority and power. Once he heard some people who had come back from that 1,500-mile trip to Jerusalem speaking in the familiar Hebrew tongue, speaking about the land and speaking about its people and speaking about the desolation of the city which was to every Jew the holiest spot on the place of the earth. And this man who had been favored to a place of great responsibility and power inquired of these who spoke his language how it was in Jerusalem and how the reconstruction and the rebuilding was taking place after a war had been concluded. They were told that the gates of the city were burned and that the walls of Jerusalem were down. And so this man, Nehemiah, did an interesting thing. He fasted. He confessed the sins of his nation and of his own heart, and he made a prayer to God to help him build again. After that fasting and that weeping and that prayer, God prepared this remarkable man, Nehemiah, for a great task. Nehemiah went into the presence of this king who held all of the powers of life and death. And his countenance was sad. And the king looked at him and he saw mirrored in his face that sadness. And so the king spoke to Nehemiah and said, why is your countenance sad? Now kings and great folk want only those who are happiest about them usually. But here Nehemiah is sad and we are told here what must be the fastest prayer in the Bible. With a quick prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please your majesty, and if you look upon me with your royal favor, send me to Judah to rebuild the city of my fathers. He prayed to God. He was prepared for his great opportunity, and he made his prayer to God. Now here he had to make a crucial test. That test would have been to stay in the luxury and the comfort of the palace there, or to leave it 
and to make his way 1,500 miles to Jerusalem to a group of people who were mocked and despised and to seek to build again the walls of that city. He made his choice thoughtfully and prayerfully. When the king asked him what he could further do, he already had in mind what he would need, and so he told the king that he needed letters to give him permission to take timber from the king's forests and stone from the king's quarries, and the king granted him those. And so Nehemiah passed his first crucial test, that of forsaking the luxury which he could have had and making his way toward the city of Jerusalem and back to the land of his people and back there with a purpose in his heart, a clear purpose, to build the walls of that city once again. When he arrived there, he found opposition. And every person who tries to build again, whether it's in a home or whether it's in a nation, will find opposition. And there were those who opposed the rebuilding of that city. There were Samaritans and there were Arabs, marauding bands who had taken advantage of the walls of the city being down, and so they despised the Jews and they did not wish them to rebuild their holy city. And so they entered into a campaign of ridicule. And Sanballat and Tobiah are two colorful names that you always ought to remember if God ever puts it in your heart to do some work for him. And if you set about prayerfully to accomplish that task, and if you run into ridicule. For Sanballat and Tobiah began to mock, and they said, all oh, these feeble Jews, look at them trying to build again the walls of their city. Well, even if a fox should run and jump on top of their wall, it would tumble down. And they laughed and mocked and scorned. But Nehemiah had faith in God and in the purpose that God had put in his heart, and he set his, pe set his people to a task, and they began to work. One old Plymouth Brethren commentator that I read had an interesting note here. He said, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down, and by faith, the walls of Jerusalem were built up. And that's a good note to remember. When one's faith is in God and his purpose is clear and his prayers have been said and he enters into that work, then he can leave the results to God no matter what the ridicule might come. Added to the ridicule, there comes finally some slander, slander that says that Nehemiah is really trying to rebel against his king. And so he has sent word word in a letter that says to him, you had better come out here and talk over with us what you're doing, because if you don't, we're going to get the word back to the king that what you're actually plotting is a rebellion against him. They knew that this would throw fear into most people, but not into Nehemiah, because he was sure of his purpose and he was sure of God. And it's interesting when they call him to come aside and go out onto the plains, his words that go back are, I am doing a great work. Why should I stop and visit with you? 
Do not be sidetracked. Do not be sidetracked from the purpose that God has called you to. Don't be drawn aside into something else, but stay to your purpose for God. Now, what are the lessons of Nehemiah for you and for me? If you read the 126th Psalm, you can read a psalm that I believe was written during this period. It says simply, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing the precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. It tells us that in life there is a seriousness of purpose that must be reckoned with. But if we are willing to face a task under the guidance of God and put our heart and soul and trust and faith in him and sow the precious seeds, we can expect God to bring to fruit what we have done. The seed which these people had would have been the wheat that they might have eaten. And it took a lot of courage to take that wheat and to sow it into the soil. And yet they did so, and they reaped a harvest. But it was not without pain. Everything worthwhile that is accomplished in life will have its price tag of pain that comes with it. But those whose purpose is clear, and those whose purpose is before God can expect great and good things to come from it in God's own good time. This is a lesson for young people, not to be discouraged, but to keep to your purpose before God and never lose sight of that purpose in him. I have often told the story of how at the close of the American Civil War, when this country was so torn, that one of the most gracious things that happened was when Lee surrendered at Appomattox. Do you remember how General Grant received him? Grant, the brusque person, but yet who could be so tender in a time when he saw someone else humiliated. Lee, the great patrician, coming into the presence of General Grant in the best uniform that he could find, signing the terms of the surrender, asking that his men might be permitted to keep their horses so that they could have them for the spring plowing as they would return again to a Southland that had been desolated and burned. Do you remember what General Grant did? When Lee walked outside to mount his famous horse traveler and to go away, General Grant took off his hat in reverence for a man who was a great soldier, although he had been defeated. And when he did, the troops who were standing nearby immediately took their hats from their heads and all cast their eyes downward in respect for General Robert Lee. Lee came home to Lexington, Virginia to a tiny little school called Washington College with a student body of 40. And there he started 
what is now the famous Washington and Lee University. Although after the war he was a person who had great calumny inflicted upon him, although there were people who wanted him hanged, although there were people who ridiculed him, he set about his task with dignity and he accomplished something worthwhile. And by the way, he rose far above any racial prejudice too. This is commendable in Robert E. Lee and it's commendable in us all. There is a dedication that is there. This past week, I had the privilege, which I will always be very thankful for, of returning home to Texas and going out to the ranch where President Johnson was buried. I stood there in the rain with thousands and thousands of other people, many who had walked across fields that were deep with puddles of water, some of us shivering in the cold. They had said that those who would, it would be no order of protocol as far as the standing near the cemetery, but whoever came could stand. We got there early and stood there for two and a half hours. There were people who had been standing since 8 o'clock that morning. And then in that solemn ceremony that occurs, there was a strange, mysterious quietness that comes across such a time as that. When as you look about you, you see faces that you never see perhaps except on the television or in the newspapers, the great and famous of the world, you look at them and look at a grave under a big live oak tree and you think of the frailty of life and the solemnity of life and of the purpose that all of us should find renewed in the considerations that come to people at such a time as that. To hear Dr. Graham read the scriptures to hear the cannon begin their booming 21-gun salute, I turned and saw a United, former United States senator whom I know well. And when taps was played, I saw the muscles tighten in the side of his neck, and I saw the tears suffuse his eyes. I looked at old Speaker McCormick in his 80s, feeble, trembling, putting his hand, hand to his head in a salute when taps was played. And I thought about all of this, and I thought of the hymn there at the end, swift to its close ebbs out life's little day, Earth's cares grow dim, its glories fade away. All of the glory and all of the honor and all of the pomp, all of this fades, but what will count forever? That which counts forever is that which is aligned with the purpose of God. Nehemiah taught his people to rebuild according to the purpose of God. 
And when at last the gates of their city were rebuilded and the walls were rebuilded, a solemn dedication was held. And when that dedication was held, then there was erected a pulpit of wood, a platform of wood. And Ezra, the old scribe, learned in the ways of God and full of the knowledge of God, read from the sacred scriptures and gave the sense thereof and set for us an example which we have tried to follow, that every preacher is a man behind the word of God, that he has no authority except that authority which is here, and he dispenses God's truth and gives the sense thereof. What Nehemiah has told us, that is in the midst of the trials of life, when we are faced with a decision about luxury or a decision of following the purpose of God, choose God. When we are faced with ridicule in the midst of a purpose to which we have set our hands by God's appointment, have a deaf ear to it. No matter what the world cries or mocks or despises, and it will, have a deaf ear to it. Carry on with your purpose with God. And do not be afraid of danger. There are things more important than this earthly life. And that which is more important is a loyalty to the purpose of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ taught us that the Holy Spirit could work a mysterious work in the mind and heart of a man that could make a man live forever. Last summer, President Johnson had taken Billy Graham out under this oak tree where he was buried. And he told Billy that one day he would be preaching his funeral. And he said, when you come out here, don't bring a manuscript because the wind will be blowing and it'll blow it out of your hands. I thought about the words of Jesus, listen to the wind. For the wind is likened unto the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that brooded over the chaos of the uncreated worlds and brought them into order and beauty, the Spirit of God which set a purpose in Nehemiah, against all opposition, and the Spirit of God which can create within us a new life. And the President was born there on that ranch only a few yards from where he was buried, a few yards, literally, from the spot where he was buried. He was born in the flesh. That which is born of the flesh will die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. I would much rather never have had the first birth than to have missed the second birth, that birth of which Jesus spoke, that birth which the Spirit of God makes within us when we yield ourselves to the conscious lordship of Christ and to the dominion of God. The war has ceased in Vietnam, we hope, but the seeds of war are in the mind and 
heart of people because our natures are evil. We need a new nature, and God has prepared a way by which that new nature can come, and that is by a new birth, which makes us to be reconciled to him through the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. If you have never met that reconciliation, today could be the greatest day of your life as you yield yourself to him. If you have made that commitment to him, you could refresh it today by thinking of your own life and its final end and what you do with the days that God has given you. May God grant that we may be builders for him, builders in our own life and in our home and in our country in a way that will bring honor to his name. Let us stand in prayer. Eternal Father, we bless thee that thou art strong to save. We praise thy name that thou hast promised him that comest unto me I will in no wise cast out. Therefore, if in this sanctuary today there be those who sense in their own mind and heart a distance from thee, will you grant to them that this shall be a moment of rededication and of yielding to thee. And Father, as we think of the swiftness by which life goes by, help us to look forward to the future with strength of purpose to let our lives be lived out in such a way that we shall reflect the beauty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to fix our minds and hearts on things that are past this earth, things that are eternal. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with each of you, both now and forevermore.